Hello, welcome to the Theology Podcast. It's great to have you with us, and uh, we've got a fun show in store for you today. It's Tom's Day, and he's going to be talking about nihilism and all kinds of creepy stuff. But before we jump into that, why don't we talk a little bit about ourselves so that you know who we are. I'm C.R. Wiley. I'm a pastor. I serve a church uh, in the Pacific Northwest, Westminster Presbyterian Church in Vancouver, Washington, not British Columbia, Washington. And I've written a few books, the most recent book, uh, In the House of Tom Bombadil, and I'm working on a book right now, a commentary on the book of Acts. But enough about me. How about you, Glenn? Glenn Sunshine. I'm a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. My main job is as a ministry associate at Reflections Ministries, and I'm a retired history professor. Okay. Speaking of creepy things. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. Okay. Well, Tom, why don't you tell us about yourself and then just take us right into the subject of the day. Okay. I'm Tom Price. I teach uh, theology, Christian thought, philosophy, Christian ethics, and one of the places at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. So, topic of the day. Um, The title that uh, I think uh, I'll kind of go along with is kind of Secular and Nihilistic Eschatologies and political theologies. So big topic. Uh, I'm not, I'm only going to be scratching the surface. Excellent. So you, don't excellent. You, you don't have to leave now. <laughs> um, and so, uh, but, but one of the things I wanted to get into um, and help, you know, uh, a lot of uh, people that maybe have an interest in why some of the various ideologies and worldview commitments around us seem to have an end game or at least be reaching towards some kind of end game like justice or equity or um, human flourishing. Um, And yet the rest of their vision or the rest of their um, commitments don't really warrant those kinds of end games um, or there's not really a coherent picture going on in, in, in their, their visions. Um, We could think of different critical theories or deconstruction, um, and we could even think of certain uh, uh, Christian variations of some of these uh, secular uh, views of, of, you know, the end game, if you will, why we're here, what we should be up to. Um, and so what I want to do is kind of look at how, how especially in the West, um, does this commitment to some kind of end, some finality, um, come about when the world prior to Christianity, which a lot of kind of early Enlightenment thinkers kind of uh, thought quite highly of, um, didn't really have a end game. They had more of a cyclical view of history and life and repetition, whereas Christianity, it has a, a cyclical view, but also within a larger linear view, which means history is going somewhere, it's culminating, it's coming to, to an end. Um, there, so we, we use the term in theology, eschatology. And so eschatology is the study of final things, not just, you know, this our final state, if you will, um, but also the end game, you know, where it's all going. And there are, of course, different interpretations of what that means. So we still fight it out in, in, uh, in seminary and in our various church communities of how best to understand um, eschatology. And I won't be getting into any particular Christian eschatology, like post-mill or ah-mill or some of the, uh, the rapture cults, as, my, <laughs> as one of my professors used to call. Um, <laughs> it's just a joke. <laughs> um, so, but uh, so eschatology. <laughs> that was <laughs> the first time I, I heard that. Uh, I, I kind of uh, I nearly fell out of my seat. But <laughs> um, but Christianity is one of the things it brought to kind of the West um, was that Hebraic understanding of history going somewhere. That uh, the kingdom of God um, and the kingdom of Christ ultimately and our part in relationship to that, that we were not created merely to just be, you know, kind of accidentally uh, thrown into being, to live a life of mostly misery and then to just extinguish. 
um, that we are we, we are created for eternal communion with God, but as the distinct kind of creatures we are in the distinct kind of habitat we've been given. Yeah, on that, Tom, I, I w- I'd like to just in- interject here. It's very much in keeping with what you're talking about, how uh, unprecedented and atypical this is with re- when we re- compare uh, the, you know, uh, Hebraic understanding of history with everything else. Um, this is where, you know, the Joseph Campbells of the world grow, grow frustrated with, with uh, the Judeo-Christian uh, tradition because it really is an outlier. You, they can't reduce it to just another one of their, you know, sort of uh, mythological systems because, um, you know, what it does is it, it uh, ign- sort of... Uh, acknowledges the importance of history. Now, we, we could say it, it imbues history with meaning, but that wouldn't seem to imply that we're the ones who bring, you know, the meaning to the history. But what it does is it acknowledges the meaning of history. And you really can't have a, a cyclical uh, cosmology if you have a beginning point, I mean, a real uh, beginning point. Um, that if there's a real beginning point, there has to be an end. Yeah, I think that that's actually a really important point because when Tom was talking about the attempt to recover cyclical views in uh, the Enlightenment, I was going to say, I think the thing that really puts the nail in the coffin of that is the Big Bang. Right. You know, the fact that all the physics points to there being a point of origin. And if you've got a point of origin that suggests a trajectory, a destination, um, and not a circular view because you can never go back and re-bang the Big Bang. Um, You can't can't do that. Um, But that's where I think we go into the nihilistic views. I want to see where you're going with that, Tom. Right, right. Well, and one of the things I think is important to uh, couple that that point about the, uh, the Big Bang is also the way in which Christianity really radically thought about beginnings. Because on the one hand, um, creation itself a byproduct of that is that time is created, right? So time isn't uh, eternally extended all the way back. Um, But because of the radical notion of contingency that Christianity brought into the picture, what do I mean by that? Well, Christianity understood creation as that which doesn't have its own source of existence within itself. It's not, it's not a thing that's able to be sustained apart from the source that gives it being to be, be sustained. And because of that, it absolutely depends all, completely on the creator, the source for it to be. So it isn't this, this kind of parallel plane alongside of some kind of supernatural deity that has, has its own um, ability to sustain itself. Think of the pagan world, for example. Plato, he didn't have a creator god like Christians do. Um, he kind of had an ultimate good, um, but, but it really had a divine artisan, if you will, who would, was a craftsman, you know, an intelligent designer, but they were taking hold of something that was, was eternal as well, material creation. So when Christianity comes in, it introduces a radical notion that there isn't eternal matter or history or time, that these are creatures. And so, so this is where we talk about ways in which science can, can confirm the kind of the created uh, starting point of time um, and the introduction of, of time um, completely. And of course, this this goes along with the fact that creation, therefore, is sustained as long as it is by the source, the creator. And furthermore, that this creation is being directed towards, it isn't arbitrarily created, but it is created out of the loving will of one who wants to share the plenitude of its being with with something that otherwise was nothing, right? So there is a purpose there for creation to share in, though, in a creaturely way, those, those uh perfections and beauties that God is by nature, right? So there's a radically different picture of what it means to be a creature, time, and even, I think, space. And this is one of the things that is going to become uh, a bit problematic with, I think, the secular view of eschatology, much less 
modern views of the secular is, um, as John Milbank taught lo- a long time ago in his books on social theory, uh, theology and social theory, classically, the secular in the Christian world did not refer to a space, but a time, right? There wasn't a, a space right, free of right. God, if you will, that is called the secular. The, you know, what it was, was a time in between Christ's first coming and the eschaton, the second coming. And so that time, also it has um, shot through it, the kind of the, the, the tensions we talk about when we talk about eschatology and theology, the difference between the future and the here and now, the already and the not yet. So there, it, it, time is kind of, and, and history is kind of complicated because in some ways there is this inauguration of, of the kingdom on Christ's resurrection and its movement towards its fulfillment. And so different Christians kind of argue about what that that uh, what the steps are in that and how that how that looks. But none of them question. I mean, part of biblical orthodoxy is that there is this time and it's a time that is under Christ's rule. Right. Um, It isn't again, it isn't a a sovereign sphere, if you will, in, in the sense that it has its its own place independent of. Um, God's sustaining, providential, and uh, redemptive work. Um, so, so that's kind of the Christian view that, that really came to be articulated up until a certain point in Western thought, where it actually takes a shift. And the complicated thing is that as Christianity kind of melts into something that continues to keep some Christian things in place, but begins to alter their definition and meaning from classical visions. Um, It becomes a new complex that is sometimes hard to unpack, but leads to these different kinds of, I would say, secular and nihilistic nihilistic views of, of, you know, what is final, what the end looks like. And uh, and then there is different political uh, theologies, if you will. And um, so, so where I'm going is how, what happens? Well, one of the things I want to argue happens, and I've argued this in, in different uh, episodes as well, is there is a kind of nihilistic element that enters into Western thought. And I've talked about it before, but I, I, I was, uh, a long time ago, I was reading Michael Gillespie's work because he's done a lot on kind of the theological sources that have gone into to the current Western culture. And one of the things he argues as a Nietzsche so, uh, scholar. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just let me comment there quickly here, Tom. This is something that I think is lost on uh, many folks who don't have an, uh, sort of a uh, background in the development of Western thought like we have. Uh, they think that in some sense, the current secular age that we find ourselves in is a, a radical break uh, in a in the full sense of the, you know the word radical, as opposed to a wrong turn <laughs> yeah. in a Christian uh, philosophical uh, system. So we can actually identify, and and this is a lot of uh, this is a lot of what uh, we see going on with you know Milbank and others, uh, you know, and, you know, in terms of the work they're doing, uh, helping us to see, you know, the roots of the secular nihilistic age that we find ourselves in today in Christian theology in the late medieval era or the late medieval yeah. early modern periods. And this is something I think is a, it is a shock uh, to, you know, good salt of the earth church going folk uh, and also to atheists. <laughs> yeah. In other words, yeah. atheists owe their, their basic outlook to some theologians you know, in the 13th and 14th centuries, you know, <laughs> that, that's right. Um, a- atheism is, is a strange kind of basically uh, flip side theism that isn't classical Christian theism. And this is why oftentimes when new atheists and, and the kind of uh, the, the atheists that, that, you know, it, it kind of ignorant of, of classic thought, Western thought in, in historic Christianity thinks that they've kind of scored big 
when they they hurl one of their uh, their kind of <laughs> arguments, not not recognizing that what they say is has nothing to do with any god, any classic historic Christian worship, much less uh, any should be worshiping today. That that kind of theism is is a fabrication of. And a move away from classic Christianity, and I, I'm going to get, uh, I'm going to kind of get back to that. Um, but one of the things is, is that what happens is, as you you kind of hinted at, is there were changes. Of course, they're historical and economic, and all kinds of changes happening at the end, you know, the medieval world as it was moving towards the Via Moderna. Um, but but one of the things that happened, there was also theological innovation, um, and it was very subtle. And it was through different kinds of debates, even about poverty and things like this. So it wasn't always directly about, you know, articulating a doctrine of God so much as, as resolving certain issues and tensions. Um, but one of the things that, that, that really happens, and we've talked about it before, is that the, the shift from classic, a classic Christian full vision, if you will, I'm not going to say a perfect synthesis because it wasn't. The Reformation was needed, right? Right. Um, but what I'm saying is that there were some things that the Reformation continued with because they believed they had it right biblically and theologically. The problem was Christianity, uh, the Reformation had to work itself out in a context in which a lot of these new ideas were rolling around all over the place, and they were borrowing from some of that in a very free way, which they, they had every right to, but sometimes they imported some of those assumptions uh, along with their theological articulations. But that's, that's another show. So what 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 am I after? Well, what Gillespie argues is that he, he says basically that nihilism is not Nietzsche's picture. Nietzsche's picture is actually a distortion of cla- the, the roots of real nihilism in the West. And the real picture of nihilism is an alteration in theology. It's what we called before voluntarism. It's this notion, a shift of a concept of God that is basically understood as sheer will, and and that predominantly, where omnipotent sovereignty is understood as just the sheer power, infinite power, but not governed by any other aspect of its nature, you know, uh, will and intelligence, for example. And because of this, there isn't any kind of uh, anything to balance that power, not even reason. Reason kind of gets demoted here because reason now is looked at as a way to basically put a limit on infinite power, the infinite God. And so you have this irrational overflow, if you will, not a supra-rational in the classic sense of the word that, that God's ways are, are, are not like ours, but almost something that is oppositional to any kind of logic um, other than just being the expression of that will at that moment. Um, and so, so reason is basically grounded now in will, not as a shared aspect of the nature of God that, that defines that will. It's a little nuanced, but it brings in a radical shift. And this is, of course, we've talked about in other shows, nominalism starts to come in along with this that we no longer have universals grounded in the mind of God, but now we just have individual, radically individual contingent things. And the names we give to those things are not something they all share in as a reality, but just conventions that, that help us make sense of things that have resemblances. Um, but, <clears throat> right. one of, but what is going on here? Losing my voice. <clears throat> Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll fill in for you a little bit here, Tom, while okay. you're getting your voice back. <laughs> okay. right. But 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 I think that uh, some, sometimes we see this we see this kind of put uh, piously, uh, and it kind of works out uh, in a kind of uh, uh, emotive pietism, where uh, reason is not just simply something that can't be reconciled uh, with the will of God. It can't even be reconciled with the faith of a believer. Uh, so. You know, the idea is that now we have a, a kind of authenticity uh, to our faith uh, when it's uh, just simply felt and not uh, reflected upon or, or even the result of some kind of informed judgment. So as yeah. I'm working on my commentary in the book of Acts, one of the things that I think is uh, worth kind of thinking about is as uh, the Lord uh, in the first, you know, f- you know, 
few verses, the first half of the first chapter of Acts, he's there with his with his disciples, and he's presenting it. He presents himself to them with uh, many proofs. So, in other words, the proofs uh, are making you know are are intended to appeal to the judgment of the disciples. So, you know, when you think about Acts, you could say that Acts is a series of courtroom dramas, and the very first courtroom drama is that opening chapter where you have. Christ presenting himself to his disciples and saying, it really is me, guys. <laughs> and what is he yeah. doing? He's appealing He's appealing to the judgment. He's not appealing to their emotions. How does this make you feel? He's not overwhelming them with the spirit. It kind of sweeps them off their feet and takes them into kind of an emotional frenzy, you know, an ecstasy or something like that. He's, he's, he's appealing to their, to their judgment. And everything, yeah. you know, throughout the rest of the book of Acts, uh, you know, is is intended to appeal to the to judgment, which m- implies that reason informs uh, the f- you know the sort of the core of the true self. When we you know today everybody is wrapped up in identity and whatever. But what do they mean by that? Well, they, well, they mean this sort of unreflected upon sort of emotional surge or passion that wells up from when that within that tells them who they are. Kind of a Gnostic yeah. understanding, but obviously Rousseau is, you know, the the the, the apologist for this, and you know that's your Thank true you. self. <laughs> that that that. They, but modern people think that's your true self. Your true self is this uh, emotional sort of passionate uh, desire that uh, is not subject to reason. It uh, is something that reason must bow to. You see, I'm getting it. Yeah. And that's actually, I think, really important because if you accept, let, let, let's move it out of a theistic framework. If you accept um, a Nietzschean understanding of the world in which you have really no absolute meaning, no absolute uh, standard of ethics, morality, anything like that, you also don't have a standard for reason. You know, and and what you get actually in a lot of the 19th century, late 19th century thinkers, uh, what they're arguing for is, in essence, the idea that human beings are not rational. This is perhaps most clear in Freud, but you find it in any number of others as well, because they've really lost the logos. They've lost the idea that there is intrinsic meaning in the universe, and so all that's left is will, all that's left is passion, all that's left is, um, you know, what, whatever it is you want to create yourself to be. And this yeah. has had an effect on our evangelism. I mean, you know, most contemporary approaches to evangelism appeal to the emotional passion itself. Um, and, you know, if you, uh, you know, make a case that's intended to um, call for judgment, you know, the, the exercise of um Phronesis, you know, sort of like the, the the wisdom of the wise man who built his house upon the rock, you know, just basically, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, reflection that's intended to, you know, sort of inform action. Um, and this, again, is another weird thing of how, how we've taken reason now and sort of uh, segregated it from the, the sort of the, the course of life. And so people will say, well, that's just, you know, abstract thought that's yeah. not it's you know dry and it's not really in touch with reality which again sort of implies that reality itself is not informed by the lagos uh yeah. but we know that it is as we or we should know it that it is as christians so when we exercise our judgment we're participating in the lagos um when we reason rightly right reason then uh we are actually saying amen to what god has already said but anyway um, going back to the idea of the Big Bang, um, if you are trying to be a secularist and you have a Big Bang, um, if it means that there is no meaning, there is no purpose, there is nothing like that in the universe. And so what is the end of the universe? I actually heard a uh, an NPR program uh, on this just last Sunday. And... The argument basically is something along the lines of heat, death, or, or something along those. I mean, there are a couple of variations here. But basically, the universe runs out. It just, entropy takes over. It just, you know, there are a couple of other options. But basically, there is no end that it's heading toward. It's going in a direction, yes, 
but the direction is sort of random and it's going to end up as a spent bullet. Yeah, that's why the resurrection is so uh, significant um, because it's a it's a it's a a, a revelation of a, of a way things end that you would never infer from entropy. <laughs> you know, entropy. Yeah. Well, you think about it. You know, every, you know, sort of anything that grows in complexity is in the, it, it defies the basic trend of the of the entropic forces or the heat death in so just the fact that you know you you know education is a kind of miracle you could say um in the sense that you know we have high you know greater levels of uh, intellectual organization inquiry we know more than we used to know you know and this is occurring in this uh system that's uh doomed to heat death at least yeah. No, they can't explain that. They, they they don't have any coherent way to explain it. They just assume it. They just assume that reason exists, but they can't explain its origin. Yeah. Well, they, they need reason to do everything they do, but in the end, they undermine everything about reason. We, and, and this is it's interesting that early Christians very quickly were attuned to the philosophical um, language of rational soul. Um, because one, the way in which, of course, the Logos, it, it, uh, especially with Middle Platonism, they, they agreed the way Logos was fun functioning and, and expressive of uh, the kind of rational, inherent logic uh, uh, of reality. This isn't simply names given uh, by God or meanings given by God. This is actually an inherent aspect of creation that participates in a, a rational uh, God. Um, and this isn't rationalism. This is the point of a rational soul, right? In, in ta talking about the human being, um, at being a dependent creature holistically, but ordered um, with one's mind uh, uh, in accord to the mind and will of God. Um, and so, so this was this language was picked up very quickly. And this is what I think is is really being rebelled against in many ways in which a new conception of rationality and, and reason and, and rationalism replaces it. But let, let me get there. Um, one of the things, just a back step, is that how does this kind of shift um, alter other things, like the conception of human beings or the conception, as we're talking about right now, of, of reason? Or another area is the conception of what it means to be made in the image of God. Because dominion, Humans having dominion over things takes on a radical new definition at this period because human beings made in the image of God, if God is sheer infinite power, first and foremost, to assert his will on his subjects and then also kind of sheer self-possession, well, the human being as an individual uh, basically is lord over, you know, his domain, if you will but also kind of lord in a way, way that they are the sole judge over their self-possession, right? Um, and, so, and so you can, you can begin to see shifts in, in the meaning of, of, uh, of dominion. You see it politically with Hobbes coming in later. Um, you see it um, just about in every aspect. But what happens is the language is still indebted to, and a lot of the concepts still, like linear history, are indebted to classic Christianity in the scripture. But the problem is they are no longer built on the classical metaphysical and theological axioms that the classical picture was. So what you have is shared language, shared concepts, but altered and placed on a new theological and medical fa uh, metaphysical foundation. This begins to set these concepts up for development in directions radically at odds then with classic Christianity. Um, John Rist, who is a fascinating writer, writes a lot on Plato. He's a Catholic Christian, writes a lot on Augustine. He, he calls it basically uh, Western thought at this period as the deformation of classic Augustinianism. Um, the will becoming deformed, if you will, both in relation to God's will and, and human uh, willing agents at, the, at this time. Um, but one of the things you really see is changes in human nature, notions of freedom, 
notions of autonomy and what it means to be a creature. A creature now is basically having my own sovereign sphere over which I'm Lord and God is only Lord if I let God in, right? Um, it, it's this kind of space. This space is created, if you will, the secular or the autonomous in which I have sh- uh, pure possession of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think uh, one of the things that is troubling to me that I, that I come across sometimes is that um, in Christian circles, particularly reform circles that use the language of dominion, I have a, I have a, a sense that there is a kind of secular or sort of a nihilistic understanding of dominion as domination that is at work in, in the thinking of some people who say, you know, we should take dominion. So yeah. uh, in some circles, it's almost as though Baconian science uh, is uh, the correct understanding with regard to the exercise of dominion. So the idea being that, you know, we dominate in the sense that you're describing here, Tom, but uh, we, we, we put a, a Jesus sticker on it or something. You know? <laughs> you know, sort of like when, when, you, when you see people who take a, like a Gold's Gym uh, you know, image, you know, you know what I'm talking about. And then they just put God's gym on it, you know, but it's the same, it's the same Same steroid sort of freak, you know, yeah, that's right. right. You know, lifting. Uh, but, but what, what you're, what you're doing is, is you're not actually, um, you know, you know, when you think about Augustine, I mean, Augustine in the city of God talks about, you know, evil in the kind of sense that we're talking about here is, is domination, as yeah. opposed to dominion. It's one of the things I tried to address in my book on Bombadil is this distinction between yeah. dominion and domination. But I'm not sure that people actually get it. Um, yeah. they, they, they understand that, you know, there is a different sort of thing we're talking about when we're talking about Christian dominion. It's not, it's not the kind of thing that Nietzsche would understand. Or, but it's almost like they're, these are, this is weird to say, but, it's, but this is, it's like these are people who are, um, Operating with Nietzsche's Nietzsche's understanding of of domination and power in Christ's name. That's well, I, that's the exact thing. The exact thing that Rist was saying about uh, the the shift in Western thought away from the classical vision. It's still shared concepts, but on uh, but, but no longer the metaphysical um, grounding. Well, what you have going on here is something similar. You have Christians now that think they're using Christian con- concepts, but they're more indebted to uh, nihilistic, um, uh, philosophical, and metaphysical uh, grounding. And so in our notion of dominion has not been purged from the kind of pagan uh, infusion of meaning that came with the shift away from classic Christianity. And so we do have to go through a radical revising exercise if we're going to be talking about these things in a way that that really, I think, captures the distinction. Uh, I'm going to give it to you in a second, Glenn, but I just want to make sure I cover this point, is that um, one of the things this shift did is it gave precedence of will over reason and freedom in an autonomous sense over ordered natures and and teleology that there there is a direction that God is uh, has has ordered things towards to which they are going, um, and and so what you end up with is the kind of modernity ends up in many ways as trying to create a bulwark against the chaos that an arbitrary divine will threatens them with. Um, because in their mind, this new this new conception of God is so scary and can't be contained because our reason can't really know what this God is doing. And Scripture only shows what God has willed, not what God will will tomorrow. This is their distorted view of God. Therefore, how do we get some kind of place, some sphere, some space where we can have self-possession and certainty that allows us not to be threatened by that set of forces? Um, and j- just long story short, because I, I'll, uh, and then I'll let get Glenn run. When we talked about romanticism last time, this was part of the place at which this will, um, and, or now it is shift to the notion of, of free, uh, free uh, feeling or uh, self-expression and self-assertion. I mean, these things all go together. 
Um, this actually brings in one of this nihilistic dark sides, that dark side of the irrational God that tried, the Enlightenment tried to shut out. It comes back in, and the romance, some romantics became uh, fascinated by it to where they believe that the, the chaotic, the destructive, the nihilistic element, the death works, were a significant part of freeing oneself, liberating oneself by these kind of arbitrary powers and orders so that one could ultimately usher in a new liberative eschatology. And Hegel, in particular, tries to basically create a dialectic in which they, the conflict and the violent are a necessary part of bringing about a, a later synthesis in which will set the groundwork for some kind of not utopia or culmination. So they start to include the dark and the nihil, the irrational, into their overall picture. So I'll stop there and then we can go where, wherever. Yeah, w one of the things I just wanted to point out, uh, which is in a completely different direction, but it picks up on something Chris said earlier, that a lot of this has influence on our evangelism. Yeah. Uh, I was struck when you were talking earlier about the idea of... Um, how, how often have we heard people talking about making Jesus Lord of your life? Yeah, yeah. As if he's not well, already. <laughs> as if he's not already. I mean, it, it, you know, the, 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 the point, you know, the, the, the point in evangelism is you want to ally yourself with reality. You want to acknowledge what is already true. Um, you don't make Jesus anything. <laughs> That's right. And, you know, but, but you know, you, you, you were talking, you, when you were talking about this before, I was really struck by the implications of that um, in connection with how we even talk about evangelism. Yeah, and, you know, letting Jesus into our hearts, you know, sitting on the throne of our hearts. The mm -hmm. only throne that most evangelicals and sort of the wide swath of American evangelicalism even have a sense of is Jesus as, you know, in, in my heart and Lord of my life. He's, he's not actually the Lord of history. He's not actually, they don't even go there. They don't, they more or less think of themselves as sort of living in Carl. I, I, I've used this illustration before, this way of putting it. Uh, most evangelicals uh, live in Carl Sagan's cosmos and, uh, Jesus uh, is Lord of this little interior space that uh, is sort of like, uh, you know, mobile and going along with them. And it's a it's a Gnostic, uh, mm -hmm. you know, uh, sort of uh, take on the Christian faith. Uh, but these are these are people who for whom if you were to call this into question, they would actually think that you're the heretic <laughs> that, you know, this is the most precious thing in my life is this inner inner life. Well, this is how deeply that the view of God has changed um, from from classical. Someone like Aquinas could completely hold that God and Christ are Lord and determine all things. And yet human freedom within its own um, order of being. Um, is is created by, sustained by, and ordered towards uh, the good that God is, um, and, and of course has a space, has their their space within that um, to to resist as well. So, uh, but that that is different than here, where you have divine will versus human will on the same plane of reality, and the only way in which God's will be done is if we open up space for for that will. Um, uh, conforming to Christ and yielding to him is talking about the way in which our whole being now is permeated by the Holy Spirit and we're indwelling a freedom that we don't have within our natural capacities. I mean, that's the point. It's, it's, bring, it's you know, bringing us into a gift uh, by Christ. And so when, when, when we talk about repentance and faith, we have a, a turning away from that which has has hindered us from receiving Christ and towards the, the, uh, the, the freedom that the Spirit allows us to indwell and participate in because of Christ's work. So yeah, it's a, it, there's, a, there's a something different going on there. Um, but you, you really, we, we tend to see that, I think in so many ways, one of the things I was thinking about, and this is kind of a little, little bit in a different direction as well, but how much our church itself um, and the place of the church, especially in, in, with, with Protestants in particular and evangelicals uh, especially, um, has, has really 
become sort of this this collect of individual self possession self possessors and and sort of uh, self expressive <laughs> individuals, right? Um, finding their voice for the Lord and all this kind of stuff, um, and displaying their talents for God and and. And, and then the flip side is this kind of collective social justice mindset, both two, two of which are part of the new set of circumstances created by this shift in, in God. But you have no place for the significance of the church in relationship to its identity in the kingdom um, in, in anything like classical Christianity, scripture, classical Christianity, and, and the notion and, and place of the church. So it's definitely an area to, uh, to think a lot about just the way in which these altered philosophies and metaphysical foundations have deeply impacted our conception of the nature of the church and our nature as a, a people of God. Yeah. And what I think this, uh, this implies is that um, the church in certain respects reflects you know, the current state of the of our culture, but our culture in its current state reflects some bad turns in the theology of the church. And which implies, I think, that something about how we order ourselves and think about these matters and, and practice our faith has a much larger kind of ambit in, in terms of how it affects the world than we than we know. Um, you know, there, there, there are a lot of people who, you know, I can remember when I was younger who would complain about theologians arguing about angels dancing on the head of a pin and that kind of thing. A lot of folks <laughs> today wouldn't even get what that was referring to, but, uh, but what, what you actually see when you dig into the history of the West is that all of the things about the West that made it unique and powerful and successful, uh, were unintended consequences of Christianity. <laughs> <laughs> it's not like we were trying to do this stuff. It's just, you know, you know, Europe was just one more sort of backwater place in this world of backwater places. And then the Christian faith took root. And uh, along, you know, along the way, uh, people thought really very deeply about the nature of reality with the help of the church fathers. And, and of course, certain pagan resources that had been informed by, you know, I think God's common grace. And as a result, um, you know, we've got the most powerful civilization in the history of the world. And then we're almost embarrassed by the fact that this power was misused in many ways, in many times, many places. Um, and consequently, we're in this weird crisis of confidence in the West. There's really nothing else out there. It's not, it's not like we're looking to the East and saying, you guys have something that we need. We, you know, it, there's nothing anywhere else that has anything to, to, to really, in, in, to, uh, to teach us in, at least in the sense of where do we go from here? I mean, there are things that, to learn from other cultures. I'm not saying that God's, uh, grace is exclusively enjoyed by the West, but I'm, I'm, what I'm getting at is that, is that with regard to the problem that we find ourselves facing and really the gift of, of sort of, uh, certain, fruits of the West to the rest of the world, like, you know, for example, technological prowess, um, the world is like, okay, well, what now? And, 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 and there's really nobody out there who has anything to say except the same old regurgitated stuff. I think, I think we've got to, we got to get our act together. And if we get our act together and there is a genuine reformation and a re and a renewal and revival of, uh, of real, uh, theology in the West, it can make a big difference in ways that people don't expect it to. Yeah. You know, one of the things I was thinking is the connection between, um, you know, we've talked about volunteerism, uh, sheer will, those kinds of things. The idea of the autonomous self, I go from there immediately to um, paganism in the classical sense of the word, where the gods were simply the biggest and most powerful uh, beings around, but they were not in any sense omnipotent. That's right. Um, nor, for that matter, were they particularly moral. 
uh, what they were were just bigger versions of us. But they themselves, in pretty much every mythology that I'm familiar with, were subject to the fates. Yeah. Yeah, so that there was something outside of them that actually ended up controlling them. Yeah. And that, in turn, brings me to sort of the atheistic conceptions of the world where we can have sheer will and everything else that we want, but at the end of the day, it's all going to burn. I mean, there, we, there, is, there is no sovereignty in an absolute yeah. sense because sooner or later, entropy wins. Yeah, I think that maybe some of the some of the things that we see going on around us with the insanity that everybody knows is insane uh, is allowed to sort of um, play itself out just simply because people are like, well, whatever, um, you know, yeah, you know, transgenderism is insane, but who cares? The world's going to wind down and just kind of like be, you know. Uh, you know, just this frozen uh, sort of uh, you know, sort of uh, void in which matter uh, is just sort of uh, you know achieves its stasis and there's no energy anymore. You know, heat death. Um, so if that's the ultimate end of things, well, let a person pretend he's a different sex. You know, it doesn't really matter. Uh, uh, why? Why should we try to be healthy? Uh, you know. So I think a lot of this is rooted in despair. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I think that, go, that goes with, again, the loss of, the loss of uh, creation in, in the sense of a, a classical view of creation. It, it, it's missing. So therefore, you, you don't really know what to do with what you have because, it, you know, in some sense, you understand why your existentialist atheist saw the nausea of existence, right? You have all this that you don't know what to do with. Right. And if it's all basically grounded in what you will, that gets nauseous after a while. Right. Because that you're not going to be able to generate the kind of transcendent ground out of yourself that you really need to carry um, the, the kind of meaningful uh, choices and, and judgments you need to, to fulfill your created nature and, 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 you know, and be a part of creation. And I think they, the existentials, when they caught off guard, kind of were honest with that stuff. Um, I think unlike, uh, some of the, your, you know, kind of social justice philosophers today, the atheistic type who, uh, really, I mean, you, you see their end game is, is usually, uh, just more, more entitlement, more privileges, you know, more money thrown at them so they can continue to kind of, you know, promote their death works. Um, but one of the things uh, I just want to talk about just really quickly is, is one, one of the kind of uh, dark forms that some of these can take. I mean, we've seen it in history. We've seen it, um, especially in, in variations in, in Russia with certain strands of left-wing Hegelians and uh, Marxists. Um, but one of the things that the left-wing Hegelians, those were the ones who took Hegel, his, uh, his dark and conflictual uh, meshing with kind of this higher synthesis, is that they took the, the individualism that uh, certain types of, of this, uh, this new worldview promoted and shifted it to the collective. So they took the infinite self-possessor individual and applied it to the concrete historical will of classes and parties that were allied for revolution, right? And so now all of a sudden they've created a kind of uh, a group identity, groupthink, if you will, that is expressing this kind of creative will at the heart of, of what we are and assertive will. And um, one of the things you see uh, in, in the Russian nihilists, Marxist, um, is that you see this actually convert, you basically develop what they see as omnipotence of the human will. So no longer is it kind of an omnipotent creator, but that has now become identified with the human being in collective consciousness. And that becomes sort of the, the, the exercise of omnipotence in the world. So this is where you start to see even in theology like Moltmann 
um, Jürgen Moltmann's Theology of Hope, which kind of takes the Marxist uh, Ernst Bloch and, uh, and, and kind of refashions it to where Christian social and political concerns become the predominant um, emphasis of a, a kind of new, new social Christian groupthink, if you will. And it goes beyond that, allying with anyone committed to these kinds of transformations, which start to look less and less Christian and more and more Hegelian or Marxian. Um, so so you, you can really see how these things begin to interweave. And then all of a sudden, I think when you have evangelicals running with, you know, critical theory and the like, the way in which they're just importing things that are already distortions and deformations of classical Christian teaching ripped from biblical metaphysics and theology and positioned on a, a alternative set of assumptions and beliefs, and yet not even having the, the wisdom or discernment to, to see that this is happening, I think really places us at a situation where we can't just be passive in terms of of how we we uh, hear and listen to those ideas. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I remember being introduced to, to Moltmann's uh, Theology of Hope as an undergraduate theology student. Um, I was ill-equipped to, uh, you know, to, to evaluate uh, and uh, sort of work my way through it. It, it. You know, and I think that's, that's, that's often what we see. We see... Um, People with the with an in, inadequate um, set of tools intellectually uh, being presented with um, ideas that are strange, but in some sense attractive to them, and they're and they're kind of swept up in those things. And I, I was talking with somebody about this just just yesterday, a guy who's a political uh, theology guy, and um, uh, we were talking about uh, you know the education of ministers in the reform world. And it occurred to me that um, in my course of my conversations with a, with a, a range of guys who, you know, come through good, solid uh, reform seminaries, is they, their, their um, education in th uh, philosophy was just really po uh, poor, just almost non-existent. They, you know, these, these guys, uh, you know, they've got a really strong um, education in Bible, they can, you know, read Greek and, and Hebrew and so forth, but they've never read, uh, they've never read, um, Descartes. They've never read, uh, Nietzsche. They've never read any of these people, um, let alone Plato and Aristotle. And they're thrown out into the world and, and they're told to exegete the culture and they don't actually, uh, have any direct acquaintance with the very things that have formed and yeah. shaped it. And yeah. it's just, it's just odd. I mean, how, how, how yeah. can these people be expected to, uh, to deal with these matters, uh, when they, when, uh, so for example, you made it, you made it off handed re reference to, uh, to, uh, you know, nausea and, uh, Jean-Paul Sartre and, and other yeah. French existentialists, or I knew what you were talking about, no exit and, you know, his, his, uh, you know, uh, you know, time where he was looking at a tree and it made him sick and <laughs> all that kind of stuff. Now, a, lot, a lot of people, I'm sure that just went right by because they, they have, they have no idea even who Jean-Paul Sartre was yeah. um, and what he, what he believed and, and what, what he wrote. And, and, and uh, I, I guess the thing that frustrates me is that um, uh, we, we are not providing um, the people in our, um, you know, most important positions of leadership in our, in our churches with the, with the tools to, to, to understand even the arguments of their adversaries. And instead they're given shortcuts, um, sort of tricks to sort of, uh, deal with questions that they yeah. can't really understand fully. Um, anyway, I won't get into that. That'll get us a hold down a whole dip, a rabbit hole. <laughs> yeah. But, but a, um, a woefully but inadequate diet. Is really, <laughs> they've been given a woefully inadequate diet. I mean, I think that's <laughs> of, of stuff that is usually trend and caricatures of the past. And I mean, it's, you know, and this isn't, I don't think anything particular to just our time. I mean, I remember Frederick Copleston who wrote his voluminous, what, at nine or 10 or tw I think it's 12 volumes of the history of, of philosophy, the, the, the uh, Jesuit thinker. 
I mean, he wrote that for seminary students as got an intro text because they were so right. inadequately <laughs> equipped for studying the basics of philosophy for um, for uh, theology. And so, yeah, I, I'm conceiving of a class in which that part of the theology course is making them read those 10 to 12 volumes <laughs> just as part of the reading. Um, I mean, that's really the kind of intro um, you kind of need to some of, of this stuff. And um, But one of the things I, I think also, and I hinted on it before when I was talking about the church, is, is the way in which we have kind of um, embodied the kind of world um, stacking that this altered vision has created in one of its forms and this is the way in which we take our kind of uh, our 17th century Augustinian um, theology, but it's read in a completely privatized way, and it's so spiritualized and, and transcendent in the wrong kind of way, that almost a deistic kind of way. Um, and then we leave open even the church itself as almost a kind of sphere of, of pure nature and human action that is autonomous, even autonomous in many ways from the lordship of Christ. That sounds ironic, but I think that's really what we have going on. We have a very secular conception of the human dimensions of the church, and we don't have a proper view of transcendence uh, informing the imminence of, of Christian life and forming us towards the good and towards the end the right way. And because of this, like you said, um, we our relation, even in worship and everything else, is being governed by these differing axioms and foundations, which should open up the door to a whole different way of conceiving of apologetics. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I've argued uh, that whenever you're looking at worldview in the church, it's always comprised of two things. One of them is the Bible, and we can add that the broader Christian tradition, and the other is the culture. And the question ends up being which one has the upper hand. Um, right now, I would say culture has the upper hand, hands down, yeah. you know, and um, that is the source of a lot of the problems in the church. And, you know, we've been discussing this philosophically, but it extends into a whole lot of much more mundane and practical realms as well. Yeah. And I, th and I think what goes with that is when the church is, con con when Christians conceive of their relation to God and the church, the way I just talked about, privatized, transcendent in the wrong way, and then kind of um, almost uh, the, the human aspects of the church is almost an autonomous uh, sphere of hu human action, um, privatized as well and self-expressive, what you end up is making the critique of a lot of these secular alternative eschatologies and theologies or philosophies more compelling because what they are critiquing is a distorted and deformed form of Christianity already. And secondly, what it does is it makes them attractive because they at least have something that moves us beyond the privatized and the self-expressive when they move towards these larger eschatological visions, um, uh, political visions, social visions, social justice. Social justice is a, is a, is, is a Christian conception at its origins, but it's been ripped from that placed on a new setting, but it becomes attractive to people in the so-called, you know, the bourgeois church that, that has no kind of, you know, motivation whatsoever to do anything that moves beyond its own self-expressive voice and its own peculiar individual concerns. Um, and again, I'm character, you know, I'm, I'm doing it, I'm purposefully being crass, but I think there is something to that. I think that that the secular conception we have in our relation to the church opens the door to a flood of these um, alternative theologies, philosophies, and eschatologies. Yeah, and for many people, since they've never sort of uh, had presented to them a Christianity that appeals to or at least includes a kind of uh, sense of the, of the larger world in which we're set, um, and only as directed toward the inner life and maybe the personal experiences of people, particularly young people who are looking for something worth making sacrifices for, uh, when they hear about, you know, the injustices that have occurred in the past, uh, they feel compelled to do something, uh, you know, about those things. Um, 
not, uh, you know, you know, for purely noble purpose reasons, but sometimes just because uh, of some social pressures that they're feeling as well. But I think, you know, we can say that it's because uh, some of these folks have never had uh, anyone talk to them about the Christian account of the world at large, you know, and uh, how the theology that they uh, are not able to maybe appreciate at the moment, actually at a very fundamental level, foundationally addresses some of the things that maybe they, they get worked up and concerned about. um, And and, and then there is a place for the, the concerns that they have, but because they don't have that larger framework like you've brought out, Tom, uh, they get caught up in some things that take them actually away from the core of the Christian faith. And uh, I've come across a number of people over the course of my life. You know, when I was involved in urban ministry, I uh, it was kind of a, a common occurrence for me to come across atheists uh, who were involved in social justice issues, who had their start in the church. Yeah. Um, and they, uh, they uh, were initially impelled to get involved in these issues um, because of certain good things that they had gotten from their Christian faith, but uh, lost touch with the church because they didn't see how what they were engaged in actually continued to have any kind of ongoing connection to the Christian faith or, you know, their, the, the understanding of the eschaton that they, that they have been presented with, uh, you know, many of them had been raised in, in, in dispensationalist and premillennial kind of environments. And since it was all going to hell anyway, there was, it was entirely clear why they should care about uh, the sort of the course of political life or whatever. So, they were often bitter, angry people. <laughs> um, in fact, I can't remember a single one of them that I would have said, that's a happy person and I want to be like them. Most yeah. of the uh, people that come to mind were in some sense embittered and and kind of even mean. Um, yeah, but yeah. they felt justified in being so because they were on the right side of history or were involved yeah. in the the fight for social justice. They were doing the, doing the work, right? That's, you always hear, you know, you know, why, why is it okay for you to, you know, have all the things you denounce uh, everyone else? It's because they're doing the work, right? Uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, they're, they're this kind of, uh, I mean, I, I've always noted the, this also a sort of kind of self-righteousness, you know, that can often, uh, or altruism that can go with, with unchecked kind of moralism. Um, but on the other hand, you see some people will use, you know, you, you will see Christians oftentimes, you, you like you just said, use as an excuse that, um, you know, the, the grace character to, to eliminate any kind of wider, com- you know, commitment beyond their own personal, you know, setup. Um, and, and so, yeah, I mean, there, there is this kind of, there's temptations, I think, that in extremes that uh, I think a healthy Christian vision helps balance. I think that's the that's the key. Um, one of the things also that's notable, um, and I think this is something we should be talking a lot about, is the way in which the attractiveness of revolution, um, because it is about transformation, but the attractiveness is always is very tempting for a time that is technological like our time, because we're used to things being done fast. But what we, what we know is that the promises of fast revolutionary transformation have a very dark side. Um, for example, where feelings rule, the possibility or inevitability of violent and perverse passions um, predominating is one side of it. But secondly, we know that rapid transformation is seductive. This is why you know, great acts take time. Eschatology is about moving things providentially towards their fulfillment. Um, it isn't about, you know, setting up, you know, the kingdom with a sword right now. Um, and, and so, uh, but with a younger generation disenchanted with the kind of um, distortions of a full Christian vision and kind of the self-absorption 
um, that a lot of churches have gotten themselves into, wanting to do something about correcting the wrongs of the past and society. Um, there's a seduction there that I think um, wisdom and a sounder vision can at least help hold in check, I hope. Um, but but you, you see anytime these radical... Yep movements come it's it's uh it's it's there's temptation there yeah this is a good place to wrap things up we've gotten about that time but what you're you what you brought to mind there uh at the end tom is uh Henri de lubach's the drama of atheist humanism yeah um which gets into the very thing you're talking about sort of like entering into this grand story um yeah. of revolutionary action and and um, that's how it all starts. I mean, you, you know, you think about Stalin. Stalin was a uh, theology student, after all. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> well, uh, so with, with those happy thoughts in mind, yeah. <laughs> we <laughs> right. We do appreciate we do appreciate your interest in the theology podcast and your support. Uh, we're grateful for all the folks who give us marvelous ratings on uh, iTunes podcasts or you know Apple podcasts or wherever they listen to us. And we are grateful for all the folks who give us uh, financial gifts in an ongoing way, a basis. And so thank you for your interest in the podcast. And thank you for listening all the way to the end of this episode. <laughs> so we'll, uh, we'll, we'll be with you again in a, uh, in a week. And uh, bye-bye. Bye-bye.